This is a Federal News Network podcast. Congress, as it does every year, crammed a lot of spending when it whipped up that so-called omnibus appropriations bill. Pretty much record-setting spending all around. And we get a summary now from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And they did it by the skin of their teeth once again. But to tell us some of the highlights that are interesting this year. Mitchell. Well, out of that $1.5 trillion bill, which, by the way, comes after nearly six months into the fiscal year, but it was finally passed, among the agencies that are getting more funding, the Transportation Department, and that will be a big one because, uh, as you know, the infrastructure bill was approved late last year. The Transportation Department's going to have a big role in effectively moving hundreds of billions of dollars in infrastructure improvements. They'll go to roads, bridges, improving Internet connections. Other agencies that were winners, Health and Human Services, Labor, the Education Department, all of this part of more than $700 billion in domestic spending. There's also more funding for cancer research, which has been a big priority for President Biden. And then the IRS is getting more money, about $675 million more. That's the biggest increase in more than 20 years. Lawmakers here on the Hill are really concerned about the backlog of tax returns and other issues which have piled up during the pandemic. And then on the defense side, uh, more defense spending and military pay raises. They were, of course, approved during the Defense Authorization Act and have already been in effect since January, but this will help to pay for it. Uh, Separately, there's more than $6 billion for military assistance to Ukraine. That will be split between paying for U.S. troop deployments in Eastern Europe and restocking weapons that are going to be sent to Ukraine. So a lot of things really crammed into this uh, overall legislation. Sounds like it happened before Congress could weigh in if they care to on the idea of that plane swap with Poland. Right, exactly. And that continues to be a controversial issue. In fact, late last week, uh, right as this giant omnibus bill was about to be passed, uh, Republican senators, uh, close to 40 of them, complained about the fact that the Pentagon had decided not to go along with this decision to basically backfill, as they say, with U.S. fighter jets to Poland, and then Poland would send its MiGs to Ukraine. I did talk to Virginia Senator Tim Kaine, who's a member of the Armed Services Committee. He indicated he does not think that this issue is fully settled, and he actually himself is open to the idea of some type of transfer of aircraft. As he pointed out, the U.S. has already been involved in a lot of transfers in connection with weapon systems and anti-artillery, and his point is if, if all these defense pieces of equipment are already being sent through eventually to Ukraine, what is the overall difference? But of course, there are a lot of technicalities in connection with NATO and what constitutes an act of war or an act of aggression. Tim Kaine's point is Putin has already made an act of aggression. He knows we're helping. What is really the difference? So I think there's going to be a lot of discussions on that ongoing. Right. I guess the sense there is it's hard to insult or incense or provoke Putin anymore since the existence of the West is an eternal provocation for him anyway. Why dilly-dally over quibbling and details. Right, yeah. It's very much a Western type of thing, right, that the democracies are actually concerned about these kind of issues where, obviously, Vladimir Putin could really care less. So will this occupy Congress now that they have got this piece done and it doesn't look like the Build Back Better is going to be resurrected in this session. So what will they, do you think, be concerned about in the immediate near future? Well, one thing that they are going to be concerned about, at least on the Democratic side, is $15 billion roughly was taken out of this omnibus, and that was essentially to get the whole thing through. There was a big kerfuffle right at the end of the week on the House side in connection with including this money. And what 
essentially it boils down to is Republicans were putting pressure on Democrats saying, look, a lot of this money from COVID has not been spent. So why don't we try to work it out so that all of the some of the money can go toward this 15 billion dollars? Well, in the process of writing up the more than 2,700 pages of this legislation and dropped in the middle of the night, as it often is, a lot of people started pouring over it and said, hey, wait a second, our state is not going to get the second tranche of funding from COVID that we were supposed to. Well, after they raised a lot of hackles about that, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic leadership decided, well, we're going to punt on this one. So that one is potentially going to occupy lawmakers. Democrats want to somehow resurrect this. Uh, The White House says it really needs this money for vaccines, for treatments, and then for testing in case there is some kind of variant that comes up again. Republicans are really pushing back on that. So it's going to be difficult to see a path for that, at least that kind of money to be passed separately by Congress. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And while we're on the subject, one last question on the congressional spending, pork earmarks. They've sort of come back. That's right. Earmarks are back. There's an old song with a refrain, too much pork for just one fork. And lawmakers will need a lot of forks to dig into the thousands of earmarks that are in this legislation. Uh, They've returned basically after more than a decade absence. Congressional aides and watchdog groups have told The Hill that there's more than 4,000 earmarks in this legislation. Not surprisingly, many are linked to appropriators. Many of them, dozens of them, in fact, have been linked to Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer as as well as many with Alabama Senator Richard Shelby, who's the ranking Republican, of course, on the Appropriations Committee. The earmarks, as you would expect, deal with a wide range of porky projects, including transportation, housing, water projects for various states represented by senators. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell did not have any of those earmarks attached to him. And Indiana Republican Senator Mike Braun on Friday night tried to get an amendment passed to ban the earmarks, but that fell far short. By the way, uh, The Hill, it's interesting, noted that more than 10 years ago, the number of earmarks was actually more than double of what's in this legislation. But I'm guessing now that the earmarks are back, we are going to see that number steadily rise. I'm waiting for the Tom Temin radio tower somewhere here, but I, <laughs> so far I haven't paid the right guys off to get it in there. you got to get it up to that trough, Tom. <laughs> and let's get to the federal agencies in this White House push for returning. It's not all that clear that just by snapping his fingers, the president can get everyone back in the office. No, it's interesting because during the State of the Union address a few weeks ago, I really noticed this statement that he made in the middle of everything else, saying that he wants federal employees to set an example, and he thinks that a majority of federal workers will be back in their offices soon. I'm sure a lot of federal employees took note of that, as well as the managers. That's led to some raised eyebrows at agencies across Washington who have, of course, as we've talked about, a growing number of people who are teleworking, a lot of people still not returning to the roads and going back to their offices. So we'll have to see how that plays out. And then on a maybe more moderate level, federal agencies have been also told to revise their guidance for wearing masks in the workplace with everything kind of relaxing a bit. Here at the Capitol, while some people still wear masks by their choice, the majority of staff, lawmakers, Capitol Police and media do not, though reporters if we're in cramped quarters, some reporters will choose to wear masks. But right now Now, uh, most of the masks here in this uh, Capitol complex have disappeared. Interesting. I got yelled at at the Kennedy Center the other night for taking my mask off to eat an M&M. Is that right? I don't know whether she was madder about the M&M or the mask, but (laughs) it was quite a situation getting jabbed in the ribs by my wife. And the Capitol itself 
might be reopening to the public after being closed for low these many months. Yeah, as you walk around the the hallways, and as I noted, people not wearing masks now, there is a somewhat of a feeling of a return to normalcy. Uh, certainly the fact that uh, all of these in-person gatherings with news conferences and uh, hearings, uh, there is a lot more in-person activity. And many of the lawmakers have made it very clear for some time that they would really like the Capitol reopened. In fact, just the other day, I was walking out of the Capitol and there were a couple of uh, tourists that were walking and they came up to a Capitol police officer and they said, oh, where's the Capitol Visitor Center? And he said, uh, just very matter-of-factly, well, it's closed. And in fact, it's been closed for more than two years. And they were like, whoa, really? So that's what we're dealing with. I mean, more than two years that we've not had school groups, tourists, all the normal people that come to the U.S. Capitol. But right now they are reviewing things. And I think that they will slowly move toward that. I don't know if it's going to be a matter of weeks or months, but uh, certainly members of both parties want to do this. Uh, Republicans introduced a resolution uh, uh, several weeks ago saying they wanted to get it reopened. So I think at some point, perhaps later this year, we will likely see the Capitol finally reopened, which will really be celebrated by a lot of people here. And I understand the mask will be coming off the statue of Samuel Adams. <laughs> That's right. We'll let him. T- we'll we'll give him that exemption. All right. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks so much as always. You bet. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect 
as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.